Hi, and welcome to the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dolan Thomas. Uh, and today I have a very special guest that I met at uh, Social Science Food Camp earlier this year. She's doing some really fascinating research, and I will let her introduce herself. Hi, thank you for having me. Sure. Um, my name is Yet Sanders. I am an assistant professor at the London School of Economics. Uh, I'm what people call a behavioral scientist. So my background is in experimental psychology, um, but I am a, a consumer of behavioral economics and psychology more broadly uh, to see if we can integrate all that information and apply it to the real world. Yeah, and, and just for viewers who aren't necessarily familiar with the intersection of economics and psychology, tell me a little more about how behavioral science and economics kind of mingle. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And I actually think that a lot of the answers to that are not completely understood yet. But uh, basically, uh, economics works off this standard model, uh, the standard uh, economic theory, which basically tries to reduce human behavior to uh, something very simple, right? What people are willing to pay for, like how much they're willing to output for something they receive input for. So a lot of our society is built on this standard economic model. But what's really interesting is that there's a lot of research that's been done in psychology that was completely in contrast to how this standard economic model works because the standard economic model assumes human rationality. Whilst in psychology, what we're finding all the time is that humans are not rational at all. You don't say. So, <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, so uh, obviously there's a conflict there. So behavioral economics essentially is trying to bridge that gap by looking at how we can overcome and understand psychological biases and heuristics in terms of how we input them in this standard economic model. Mm -hmm. So uh, when, we, uh, when we met, you uh, had just given a presentation on some really fascinating research that had to do with the days of the week. Can you uh, give us a pressy of kind of what you looked into and what you discovered? Sure. Yeah, so when I was at SAIFU, I spoke about how uh, psychological state and behavior can fluctuate over the weekly cycle. Um, so over the last couple of years, this has really been my baby where I just haven't really been able to let go as to why this might be happening. Um, and one of the main reasons was that we found, uh, so this is other collaborators and myself, so uh, some of my important collaborators here are Rob Jenkins and David Ellis uh, at the University of Lancaster and at the University of York. Um, and all three of us kept finding these patterns where uh, where you'd expect behavior to be the same on every day of the week, we actually found that behavior was different on different days of the week. Um, so one of the first areas that uh, that we looked was, was, at was uh, like medical appointments, so whether people are more or less likely to miss medical appointments on different days of the week, and, and that's what we saw. And then we thought, what is going on here? Um, so we started to dig into that a little more. So what did you find out? Well. Uh, we don't really know the answer yet as to why it's happening, but we did find that it's happening everywhere. So hmm. we see these fluctuations uh, in voting intentions, for mm. example. So we looked at uh, election data ahead of the Scottish independence referendum. So this is like obviously a very important vote uh, that where the Scottish people have a one-off chance, essentially, well, potentially a They'll have a second chance now, but they had a one-off chance to say whether they wanted to remain as part of the United Kingdom or not, um, a union that had been in place since the 18th century. So 
uh, obviously that's a very important decision. Um, so what you'd expect is that people will be thinking about this decision ahead of time uh, and that they make um, a sort of reflective choice about what they want to do there, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you shouldn't see any fluctuations over the days of the week because what day of the week it is should be trivial to this important decision, right? Mm -hmm. Well, when we looked at those voting intentions, we actually saw that they fluctuated. So from Monday to Thursday, people's uh, interest to become independent from the rest of the UK diminished. So we saw a 4% difference from Monday to Thursday, and then on Friday it shoots back up. Hmm. So essentially 4% more people uh, are against independence on Thursdays as compared to other days of the week. So like that's one of very, very like, clear example. We then found the same pattern for Brexit and for the election of Donald Trump. Um, so like that was a puzzling finding. Mm -hmm. Then you start to think about, okay, what is the like, cognitive principle? Like what's underlying all of this? Um, and one key component to all decision making is how much risk you're willing to take. So we then ended up looking at risk tolerance and whether that tracks the same pattern. Mm -hmm. um, and we found the same pattern, essentially, nearly exactly the same. So from Monday to Thursday, people's risk tolerance goes down, and then on Friday it goes back up. Uh, so that suggests that it's risk tolerance that is fluctuating over the weekly cycle. So we're more willing to take risks on the weekend than we are during the week. Is that roughly how it works? I mean, that's actually a really interesting thing that you're adding to that. We don't know whether it's the weekend necessarily because it's very difficult to get weekend data. Mm. We know that from Monday to Thursday it goes down, so it seems oh, like okay. the middle of the week people are less likely to take risks than towards the end of the week or in the beginning of the week. Now, what happens on the weekend in terms of risk tolerance is a bit of a mystery, but we do know that um, mood peaks on Friday, Saturday, mm. and we know that there's a relationship between mood and risk tolerance. So. Mm. Uh, like we expect that, that risk-taking goes higher on Friday and then goes even higher on Saturday and then kind of levels off again on Sunday when you're kind of preparing for the week again it's where it's uh, the same as on Monday, if that makes sense. And then it lowers again Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday where it reaches the lowest point and then goes back up. So there's this cyclical pattern. Huh. And you're saying like mood can affect you know, risk uh, tolerance. So what do we think is happening um, in the middle of the week with your mood that's different on the weekends as far as like that might be affecting a risk tolerance? I mean, that's a great question, one that I don't know the answer to yet. Uh, one thing that we do know is that the weekly cycle is a man-made mm. cycle. So like no one, there's, there's no biological system that drives fluctuations over the weekly cycle. We know that humans are doing this collectively. So we think it's a social cycle. So um, let me give you some context around that. Uh, like when you might be going like to the shops, for example, the opening hours, when you might be dropping your kids to school, uh, like when you might be going to work or not, is probably all affecting your mood. Mm -hmm. So we've collectively decided that there's these times where we do certain things. We think that, that is affecting your mood in a systematic way and that that is affecting your risk tolerance and then your decision making or behavior on a population level. So on an individual level, you might sometimes just find like you're grumpy on a Monday morning, right? Mm -hmm. Or you might just have a little midweek slump. And that might not be so important on an individual level, but when you're talking about these decisions that everyone is making collectively, then we are all shifting like from feeling more or less inclined towards a risky option, like mm -hmm. for example, in voting behavior.
so it can make a big difference. Yeah, and I feel like there's you know huge implications. Like I've looked at um, risk behaviors around like judicial decisions, right? Like at different times of the day, a judge may or may not be more prone to take a risk depending on how recently they've eaten or like, you know, they've looked at, at factors like that, like when's the most recent time they had a, had a break, right? And then to sort of layer in, oh, the day of the week might matter also is really interesting. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. I'm glad you're bringing that up because the thing is that, that we know a lot about behavior in different contexts, right? Like we often, when we're doing like this experimental work, uh, we tend to say, okay, let's put a lab coat on someone. So we put someone in a different environment. So we test them with or without the lab coat, right? So we mm -hmm. test that same individual under different conditions. But we often forget about this sort of temporal dimension of their decision-making too. Like if you are wearing a lab coat in the morning versus whether you're wearing a lab coat in the evening, it might actually have a very different symbolism. It might mean something really quite different. Like if you see someone in a lab coat on the street in the evening, you probably think they're going to a party. Whilst <laughs> if you see them in a lab coat in the morning, they're probably heading to work. That's great. So we have many different associations mm -hmm. um, and we don't necessarily test individuals at lots of different time points because it's very expensive. Yeah. Um, so that's something that we call intra-individual differences. So inter-individual differences is when you're testing people under different conditions mm -hmm. or you're testing different people. So let's say introverted versus extroverted people um, in the context of a party. That would be inter-individual differences and intra would be testing someone who is considering themselves as an introvert under lots of different conditions. So mm -hmm. they might be more extroverted at a party than they would be in the library, right? Like just like an introverted person, like an extroverted person. Mm -hmm. um, so those are sorts of individual differences that we see fluctuating over situations, over environments or contexts, like physical contexts. Mm -hmm. But we know behavior fluctuates across both space, right? And we know quite a lot about that already, but also across time. And there we know very, very little still. And no one's really looking at bringing all of that together. So real world temporal contexts, like the time of day, the time of the week, or even the month of the year. Like, mm. how do you as an individual change? And how does that differ from someone who might identify as having different characteristics? Like, whether you're a drinker or not, or whether you're an introvert or not, or an extrovert or not. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes total sense. And it kind of opens up just this whole field of study, right? Because even to your point about the time of year, I know that, you know, as a professional, I work in um, client services, right? So I have clients in all sorts of industries, you know, healthcare, finance, what have you. Um, but consistently, everybody goes and like takes a break in the summer, right? Even though they're not still in school. Like if you're in school in the States, like you're used to, oh, summer's off, like that's just the way it is. And you can account for people who have kids, right, might behave differently, but even the ones who don't. Like, mm. there's this notion of, oh, well, summer, we're just not going to get a lot done. We've just sort of accepted that. <laughs> even though yeah. we're long past the point where that's being imposed culturally on us, it's sort of this habit. And it's just fascinating to see the different ways. And to your point, a lot of this is socially engineered. There's, there's nothing biological. Like, again, a year is, you know, it's a construct in terms of like literally the earth going around the sun, but like in terms of like behaving differently at different times of the year, that's totally socially constructed and it's interesting to see it impact. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I think it's especially interesting because it is going to be this intersection between a biological system and mm -hmm. biological cycles um, and this psychological phenomenon. So figuring out what is the stuff that's cultural and what is the stuff 
well, with that, that's social, right? Mm -hmm. Because anything cultural is automatically engineered by humans, as well as the, uh, the biological patterns. So obviously the circadian rhythm does affect us. Like, so that's the time of day, right? There, mm -hmm. There's very clear evidence that there's also different times of day at which we are just more alert, and that, that affects our cognitive functioning. Um, and that affects our mood, and we don't know really what is causing what. We just know that the circadian rhythm is a part of being human. Mm -hmm. And the same for seasonal effects, or even the menstrual cycle. We know that there's all sorts of fluctuations that are happening on a cyclical basis. So humans need to deal with these cycles. But the, the social component on top of it sort of adds this extra complex layer where sometimes it diminishes different effects and sometimes it like enlarges effects that we observe, like the summer one that you just described is a great example of that, where the social engineering around drinking culture, for example, mm -hmm. uh, like makes people much more likely to drink in the summer, but only for social drinkers. So people who tend to have a drinking problem tend to drink much more in the winter. So there's an interaction between different types of people, like the biological functioning of what winter means. Uh, or like how the human body interacts with winter and summer, mm -hmm. and then also the social phenomenon. So if you're a social drinker, then you tend to drink more in summer because you're with your friends, and that's socially acceptable. Whilst if you have a physiological problem around drinking, then you tend to drink more in the winter, mm -hmm. which is possibly more biologically driven. Hmm. And even, I think we had talked a little before about how, like, months and years there's like a physical component to like how we're defining those but weeks are really arbitrary right we just sort of invented them and like cross-culturally too weirdly we've just sort of all agreed oh yeah seven days that's a week let's work with that yeah i think that's actually like you're you're like right on the on the dollar there i think it's it's so interesting that's also why it fascinates me so much i I feel like all these other cycles, there's at least a biological grounding to it. Mm -hmm. But with the weekly cycle, that's so much of a puzzle. It seems like, I mean, I wouldn't want to attribute percentages to it, but at least the majority of it tends to be social. Like, we don't really know what the biological basis of the weekly cycle is. There's barely any. We do know that a lot of different cultures have independently of each other come up with a weekly cycle. So there's the Tang China, I think it's called. Um, there's also Gupta India. They came up with a six to eight day cycle. Mm. Uh, I think something like 600 years BC. So there seems to be something comfortable around having a cycle that resets in terms of how much we work and play mm -hmm. uh, or rest and working days. Um, so that's fascinating. Yeah, and, and we don't know exactly what that comes from. Yeah, and, and even, I mean, it's interesting. I, I, I was going to talk about how, um, you know, the weekend is also a construct, like, for a long time. Like, we have, you know, in the States anyway, we have labor unions to think for weekends at all. Um, <laughs> and then, but even beyond that, there's a lot of conversations going on now around, like, the four-day work week, right? And, like, is that, you know, kind of a more constructive thing? Because, again, that's completely a construct. If we decide it's four days, it's four days. And I'm curious, yeah. like, if we, if we were to universally go to that, would that then affect our risk tolerance during the week? Like, would you know, Thursday suddenly be the day that our risk tolerance goes up. That is certainly what I would expect. Like, I think it's very hard for me to make a real case for that, but I'd expect that we see that fluctuation. The best evidence that we have um, is that we see that on bank holiday weeks, mm. we see the entirety of this weekly cycle shift. So hmm. at the moment, um, if I'm talking about a Monday, 
it's really, really what I'm talking about is not the actual Monday, but it's about the beginning of the working week or the beginning of the day that shop opening times tend to happen, right? Not everyone works on a Monday, but social stuff happens that we all associate with Mondays. Mm -hmm. Whilst when it's a bank holiday week, we call our uh, Sunday, uh, or sorry, our Monday becomes a Sunday, and then our Tuesday becomes the beginning of that working week, and then we see that that entire pattern shifts and it just becomes a little shorter. So mm. we see that Tuesday and Wednesday, mainly Wednesday, tends to become this middle of the working week and then Friday is the same again. That's really interesting and um, I, uh, I wonder if like in the next phase of study it would be really interesting to look at uh, people who are unemployed and does their like risk tolerance change throughout the week? Like are they still kind of locked into the cycle of the work week even though they're not literally working? I mean, I would love to look at them. Uh, we have looked a little bit at shift workers um, mm. and students, so people that have um, like have a very different uh, working week than most other people, and we do see a, a very similar pattern. So mm. we don't see any differences. We do see that working adults tend to have a uh, like a stronger effect of the weekly cycle, and uh, the best evidence we have in terms of people that are not employed are the elderly. So we mm. have looked at. Um, how people are functioning that are in their pension year, so we don't actually know anything about whether they're working or not, but we know that um, in people that are over 65, we see a diminishing effect of the weekly cycle in missed medical appointments. So in this mm. case, what we see is a linear trend, so we see that people are less likely to show up to medical appointments in the beginning of the week than towards the end of the week, but that that's mainly driven um, by working adults, mm. uh, both male and female, in a similar trend, but it so happens that men are much more likely to miss medical appointments than women. Really? Um, yeah. <laughs> so I kind of want to dig into that because purely by coincidence, I managed to find out that um, uh, in the States anyway, people missing appointments is huge. It is a 160 billion with a B dollar problem. Like that's how much money is lost every year from people missing appointments. So like any insight we can get into that is like a really big deal. So you're saying A, men are doing it more often than women, but B, you're saying it's happening more during the week than, so yeah, what, how, how did that map to, remind me, how did that map to um, days of the week in terms of when people were missing more or less? Sure. So, I mean, the first thing I should say is I should caveat this because this is this is uh, data that was recorded in Scotland. Mm -hmm. So this is all based on Scottish data. Okay. Um, in principle, we expect that these patterns are the same in lots of other populations, but it's always worth noting that this is a very specific demographic that we worked with. Now, it is also based on four and a half million data points um, mm. of basically all missed medical appointments in Scotland um, uh, during the time point that we collected data for. And if I recall correctly, this was in 2012. So we basically analyzed and looked at reorganizing this data um, by what day of the week people missed those medical appointments on. And we saw that in the beginning of the, people, of the week, people were more likely to miss medical appointments than towards the end of the week. That was the first thing. Mm -hmm. We also saw that it was more so the case for men than it was for women. Um, and more so the case for young people than it was for old people. Mm. Now, interestingly, there's an interaction there, so young people are more likely to um, uh, be affected by the day of the week as well than mm. old people are. Um, but what we can learn from that is that you can use that information to 
schedule appointments differently. Mm -hmm. um, in the UK, this is also a massive problem. Um, in the UK, they have something called uh, the NHS, uh, the National Health Services, which are free for everyone. That also means that tax money is going down the drain every time someone doesn't show up to a right. medical appointment. So uh, they put a lot of effort into trying to get people to show up to these medical appointments. Now, so far, the, the best types of interventions that they've been able to apply in terms of using behavioral science are things like sending people text messages that make it easier for people to uh, cancel their appointments if they're not going to show up, which have like the phone number in it. Mm -hmm. Now, what's really interesting there is that people got really excited just about like a 2% reduction in missed medical appointments, right? Because yeah. that already, like you say, it's like a really big loss really big loss to the health service, so that already makes a huge difference. And what's really interesting is that the, the, we've done a small trial, a small trial with one um, hospital in Scotland, so one outpatient hospital, um, to reduce these medical appointments. And all we've done is we've moved scheduling from the beginning of the week towards the end of the week. And we were able to reduce missed medical appointments by 12%. So this is a premium post. Wow. It's definitely a small study. Mm -hmm. and we have to get a bigger partner to see if we can do this. Um, but it's promising. It's yeah. promising. Like, it, it would be a huge savior if, if this is something that we can do. I think another thing that is interesting to think about in that respect is some, some hospitals will not be able to shift their appointments towards later in the week, right? Mm -hmm. That's going to be pr quite problematic. But one thing that might be possible is to um, look at uh, which demographic information you might have available about your patients. Mm. So you might be able to put your elderly patients earlier in the week mm -hmm. who are less likely to miss their medical appointments in the first place, but are also less affected by the weekly cycle. And then put your younger patients, and especially your younger male patients, later in the week. Yeah, and that's, you know, I mean, it's interesting to me where you sort of go from, okay, we've noticed, we've, we've observed this phenomenon, this behavior, into like, you know, what are the nudges that we can do to sort of, you know, make better use of this data? I mean, I think about um, the fact that, so it's a big thing here where uh, we're, you know, one of the few countries, you know, democracies that makes it harder to vote. <laughs> like, we have it on a Tuesday, yeah. and, you know, it's, you know, a lot of people working, it's really hard to, you know, there's all sorts of, like, barriers we throw up. Um, and so people talk about, well, what if it were a holiday, right? Or what if it were on a weekend? And that's mostly around just ease of voting, but it would also be interesting to see if that also impacted, like, to your point, if people, if that changes the risk factor for people, would people vote differently on a Saturday than on a Tuesday, right? Like, would that actually affect political outcomes, um, not just voter turnout, if we were to change the day of the week? I mean, I would love to measure that, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> that, that's to say, for starters. I think what's interesting is that we don't always see exactly the same pattern, and mm. I think that's because we can't not, like, ne uh, necessarily align... Uh, people's voting to risk tolerance all mm. the time. So n not every vote is going to be aligned with risk tolerance. We have good evidence to suggest that risk tolerance is fluctuating throughout the week, and we have good evidence for some data sets that it's very clearly a risky vote to vote one way or another way, mm -hmm. but we don't always have that. Um, so it is also possible that we won't see fluctuations all the time, but certainly when it comes to knowing that there's very clear patterns in mood over the weekly cycle, and we already know that our mood is affected 
uh, like by all sorts of things like a rainy day mm. we know that a rainy day like if it's a rainy day on the day that you're voting we see that there's a, a shift in patterns so I think in general, it's really important to be mindful of when you're asking someone to vote, that these sort of temporal eff like effects that shouldn't be affecting decisions mm -hmm. of this magnitude are actually affecting decisions of that magnitude. And so my prediction would be, yes, absolutely, we would see a shift in, uh, in the decision. In what direction would probably depend on the political candidates and, and the choices that people are facing at that particular time point. Yeah, and that's, I mean, here in the States, that's actually a very big deal right now because there's this sort of political um, thing happening where on the Democrat side, there is this split between people who want to sort of play it safe and have a candidate who's sort of espousing, you know, very safe, liberal, but very safe liberal values versus a group that wants to espouse more just revolutionary like free healthcare or reparations or sort of like these big, like real fundamental system shifts. And I have to imagine that those are the types of policies that really, you know, ping people's like, you know, risk tolerance, right? <laughs> uh, in terms of like what they're willing to vote for and like how much of a change they're willing to, to make. Um, yeah. it's, it's, it's a really interesting time to be thinking about, about risk. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating time. I mean, there's so much happening in the States, uh, like as an outsider, um, uh, that even we're paying very close attention to. Mm. Um, it's both in the UK and also in the Netherlands where I'm from. Um, every, everyone's got an eye on what's happening and I think risk is going to be a key component to that, risk and uncertainty um, and dealing with that uncertainty uh, that people are currently facing. Um, I think what's really interesting in terms of the weekly cycle is that you can't say necessarily what's better mm. and which day of the week is better. All I can say is that if you want people to, mo to vote against risk taking, then Thursdays are going to be more likely to make that happen. And if you want more, uh, more uh, like so le less conservatism, I guess, or more engagement with risk tolerance, then Friday and Saturday would be a more logical uh, day for that. Um, and that applies to all sorts of behavior, uh, which you know, obviously with, with voting that feels like, can feel like a manipulation, mm -hmm. but we are consciously thinking about when we send interventions into the real world all the time. So you might want to think about what day of the week aligns best with the desired behavior for the population. Yeah. And tell me a little bit, if you can, about sort of the state of that research right now. Like, um, is it ready to be published? Is it still in review? Like, how are, where, where, where is it at the moment? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think, in principle, there's stuff that's published and there is stuff that is still in the works. Uh, I think with any published work, it's worth the caveat that we have to replicate it all the time. Mm. Uh, science progresses slowly. We found some really exciting things that have been published. All that means is that we've completed the work and it's been under the scrutiny of peers in the field, right? That's when it's published. That's all we can say, really, is that other people have looked at it and have said, uh, this work is uh, has been done and executed carefully. Their methods are legitimate, um, and their findings are therefore a logical conclusion. But we never really know whether it's true or not. Mm -hmm. um, all I can say is that, you know, I would love to put this to rest. I would love to say, I understand what's going on, and I don't have to look at it anymore. But I've not been able to do that ever since I started looking at this. There's mm -hmm. so many questions that need answering as to what is happening, what is driving these fluctuations. Um, and wherever I've looked in 
both in the literature but also in big data sets mm. uh, like whether it's in crime or whether it's in healthcare or whether it's in financial decision making I've been finding these patterns that are consistent with this fluctuations in risk tolerance but also in personality um, or in sensation seeking or in uh, like voting behavior or I don't know the underlying mechanisms of voting behavior social support uh, you name it and it's there mm -hmm. Um, and that, so that those patterns are very consistent, not just by one research group, but by many. Yeah. Um, and that there's many, many questions that we need to answer to be able to understand what the mechanism is. And there we get into a bit of a chicken and egg, right? You yeah. kind of can move forward and say, like, how can we apply this? How can we use this? Or you can move backwards and say, what is driving this? Mm. What is causing this? And how can we narrow down the uses instead of testing all the uses? so we can be sure what's happening where um, and um, uh, so I guess that's the state many many questions to be answered but yeah. also enough consistency that I feel comfortable to talk about it yeah no that's that's great and I always like to, to caveat that um, and I'm glad you made that distinction that distinction between published and replicated is something I think the Absolutely. public isn't necessarily in on so it's good to it's good to highlight that. <laughs> yeah. Um, one final thing I wanted us to touch on, because we talked about this before and I find it fascinating. Um, we've talked a bit about this notion of, okay, well, once you found this finding, that was kind of one of the two paths you just talked about, like, okay, well, how can we apply it in the real world? Um, and we've talked about how that's becoming, you know, more of an institutionalized thing, especially in Europe, is taking some of these behavioral findings and finding ways to, you know, put them towards social good. I was wondering if you could talk a little more about what you found there and maybe some of the, the things you've been up to. Yeah, sure. Um, I think it's a huge debate. Um, at the moment, there's a lot of government institutions um, that have been thinking about, okay, there's a lot of information in how humans function in the real world. We're also still applying this old um, uh, standard economic uh, model to, like, to interventions and how likely we think those interventions are going to be effective, so maybe we need to incorporate this understanding of psychology and behavioral economics to update those systems and those interventions that we're designing. So one of the big pushes towards that is by bringing um, behavioral insights teams into government. Um, so in the UK, uh, who are at the forefront of this, but there's many other national governments that are now doing the same thing, including uh, the US for a while, although that's been put on pause uh, under the Trump administration um, is that there's teams internal to government that are thinking about real-world problems and are trying to actively apply this behavioral science work. Um, that is something that I've been doing for the last couple of years myself, both internal to government in the UK but also as uh, an academic advisor to different government organizations um, in uh, public health, so keeping the nation healthy and uh, helping the nation to be better educated, for example. Um, and what that looks like is that you basically look at this toolkit of where humans are irrational. Mm -hmm. So there's all these biases that we have now uh, been able to evidence, and you're obviously very, very aware of all of those. And then you look at that toolkit um, and you see how you can overcome them by applying behavioral science in real world context. So it's mm. about really understanding the problem. So let's say diet and obesity, that's a huge problem that, that um, a lot of uh, westernized 
countries are facing and obviously non-Western countries are moving in the same direction if they're not already there. Mm -hmm. um, so this, this is the obesity epidemic. Now one of the things we know that needs to happen is that people need to shift their behavior. So you can then look at this toolkit and see when we're, as a government, um, uh, looking at an intervention, let's say making supermarkets healthier, how can we apply behavioral science or our understanding of these cognitive biases to make those interventions uh, even more effective? Um, and I think when it comes to looking at those specific biases, it can be challenging. Um, because sometimes something has been replicated many, many, many times, but then when you use it in the real world, it doesn't work. Mm. Um, and I think that's why we have to test it. And I think it's really important that we use randomized control trials to be able to test everything that we've done in the lab in the real world before it then becomes um, the sort of uh, standard letter or the standard way of doing something rather than uh, just looking at the literature and saying, okay, well, this is what the literature says, so we can implement it right away. Right. Um, so my ideal situation would be that that testing is continuous, that it's an integral part of the system is to keep testing, like a sort of A-B test on a website, right? Mm -hmm. Like we test everything and not just once. You don't just uh, roll it out once it's working. You keep testing the effectiveness of whatever headline you are using. Now, that's obviously from a marketing or an uptake perspective, but like, just imagine if we would be doing that for uh, like how healthy we're making the public or how educated we're making the public, that we're not just rolling out things that we think are effective, but that we keep measuring it with these different populations at different time points um, and with different intervention components that we bring in or take out as we kind of merge it with different populations. Um, I think that is really powerful, but a lot has to happen before that's that's truly feasible. Yeah, and it's, you know, I think we were talking about this before, like I'm from the world of UX design, and so we think yeah. very much about iterative design and constantly testing and improving and refining and then put it back out and test it again. I think you had an interesting, like, less used uh, aspect of that, which is randomized trials, which would, I think, give it even more integrity. But I would love to see like a merging of the kind of behavioral science discipline and the UX discipline to really you know, take advantage of what each other knows about humans and interventions and design and behavior to create this sort of like, you know, super machine <laughs> of our super team of like, you know, behavioral scientists and UX designers to kind of like, you know, make these things happen with, you know, equal rigor. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited about that, actually. I, th I think it's happening more and more now that behavioral science is taking more of a, a center stage in government or outside of government where there's different uh, teams of behavioral scientists or at least a, a designated behavioral scientist which becomes internal to different organizations. Um, and they are learning to talk to people that come from different worlds, whether it's from marketing or UX design or um, even architects, like we talk a lot about uh, the designing physical spaces. Mm -hmm. um, and so we need to learn to speak the languages of lots of people that are working interdisciplinarily. Um, and I do think it's happening. I think it's happening um, slowly. I'm not sure if slow is the right word, uh, but it's slower than I would like it to happen. Sure. Uh, I think it definitely is facing growing pains. Like interdisciplinary work, I think, has a lot of growing pains. Um, but I think it's absolutely worth pursuing. Like I think once you speak each other's language, I think a lot of very interesting things can come of it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you so much for being on the uh, show. It's been it's been great having you on here. 
Thank you so much for having me. Um, and for the Cognitive Bias Podcast, I'm your host, David Dillon Thomas, and we will see you next time. Thanks.